Our reading today is from Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Good morning. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. Um, We are wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, which you've been in for about nine months. And um, these next few weeks, as Jesus closes out his sermon, um, it's interesting what he doesn't do. Um, He doesn't give us a poem or a haiku. Um, he doesn't throw a launch party with all kinds of swag and party favors, you know, uh, have like some kind of t-shirt launcher, you know, starts a campaign, uh, trying to fire us up and rally us to go out and now change the world. It's kind of a buzzkill. Chapter seven is the ultimate buzzkill. If you're used to hype, um, because Jesus isn't trying to hype us up and whip us into some kind of a frenzy. He's trying to do something to actually much more important to our longevity and sustainability in the kingdom of God. He gives us warnings. Four warnings at the end of this sermon. Uh, and, and he presents us essentially with two alternatives, two ways to live, two decisions that we choose between. Um, he talks about, Josh spoke on this last week, two gates or two paths or two ways. Two prophets, um, which we'll talk about next week. Um, two types of doers and two types of houses or two builders. And in these particular verses in, in 15 to 23, which are kind of a, a larger unit within this uh, warning section, Jesus warns us about the danger of deception inside the faith community, inside the religious community, inside the church. And we're flipping these passages. If you notice, we didn't go in order. I'm going to come back next week to 15 to 20 to talk about uh, false prophets, because I think uh, a lot of us, um, and, and this is kind of a thing, if you're not like a, a Christian, you may not get this, but like there's this whole uh, segment within the Christian community, we call them like discernment, bloggers, watchdogs, and we get really excited about watchdog type ministry and calling out false prophets and false influences. Uh, but actually, to me, the more uh, dangerous deception is the one that Jesus deals with, at least in our day. Uh, in 21 to 23, it's the danger of self-deception. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the, the greatest enemies to our spirituality are not outside of us, but inside of us. We are sometimes our greatest enemies. And the danger of being deluded and deceived and the thinking, uh, not only deceived in our teaching about others, but deceiving ourselves, having these massive blind spots that we can't see. And, um, and so this danger of um, deception is huge. There's a lot of talk about self-discovery, self-awareness in our day. And I'm all about uh, becoming more aware of who I am. Uh, but this passage is a call to self-examination. We don't often think about self-examination. If the Bible says all over the New Testament, test yourself to see if you're in the faith, examine yourself, do the hard work of looking inside, not just to affirm what's already there, but to challenge some of the things that are there that are not aligned with the kingdom that is coming among us. And so this passage, if, I mean, if I'm just honest, I try to be honest every week, but if I'm really honest this morning, has scared me more than any other passage that I've taught 
in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Wrestle with this. This warning here is, is absolutely terrifying. He says, many will say on that day. I mean, many. I was thinking of this room like many. What is many? It's at least 51%. Uh, it's probably m- more than 51%. But like in this room, there's you know 200 of us gathered. Many of us will find ourselves on this day saying these very things to Jesus and we'll find ourselves left outside the kingdom of God. What, I mean, what if it's 101? What if it's 170? Like, the temptation is to read this and to think, oh man, I wish somebody else was here to hear the sermon. Or to elbow our spouse and say, are, are you listening? You know, like, you're, there's a danger here for you. But he's saying many of us will be deceived. And so, there's a warning for all of us to heed. Me first. I think those who are in ministry, those who are pastors, those who are leaders in the church, like, I want you to listen and not play the role of the hero in the story. We tend to read ourselves in as Jesus in the story, and then we think about all the people that we know that need to hear this message that are kind of the villains, that are the ones that are being deceived. What if we just kind of flip that this morning and we assume that we're the ones that Jesus is talking to, particularly those of us who are in ministry? The question I want us to answer, I think that Jesus is inviting us to answer this morning, is how can we be free from the tyranny of spectacular success and performance-driven religion? How, do we, how can we be free? And not just religion, really life. Like we, this is the way we live as, as Western, Westerners, as Americans. How can we be free from the tyranny of spectacular success and performance-driven humanity? So I want us to start by observing um, who these people are that Jesus is talking to. So we'll start with this, because um, this is kind of like a, a profile that he's writing for us. This, we'll, I'll call this the profile of the hashtag crushing it Christian. Right? The, the crushing it Christian. He, he says, on that day. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you would know exactly what Jesus is talking about when he says in verse 22, on that day, on that day, that day in the Bible is the day of judgment. It's the day when we will stand before God. The Bible says all of us will die and we will stand before God and give an account for our lives, for how we've lived and the decisions that we've made. We'll stand not just in some kind of a, you know, like um, I forget what the movie was with like Morgan Freeman when he played God. And it was like this uh, this corporate thing, you know. And the, and the person died and they kind of stood before face to face with Jesus himself. We'll give an account for our lives. This scene to me kind of feels like like an investment uh, funding round of some sort. You have people pitching themselves to Jesus. Um, there there is maybe like a performance evaluation. The boss comes in and they're kind of listing out their resume and here's all the reasons why I deserve a raise. I deserve to get into the kingdom of God. That's kind of how it feels to me. And so Jesus is um, giving us a profile of a kind of Christianity that will not stand on that day. What's the profile of this person, these people? I mean, notice, like, it's, this is crazy. He, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice their, the, the profiles, they, they have sound doctrine. They know how to say Lord. They probably know what it means in the Greek. They know the Greek word here is kurios, right? Lord, Lord. Their, their doctrine is accurate. They're Christ-centered. They say Jesus' name a lot. They invoke the name of Jesus. They're gospel-centered. 
whatever you want to say, Christ-centered. They, they know all the Christian lingo. And if you don't know what Christian lingo is because you're not like a churchy person, just read like John Acuff or, uh, you know, uh, I think John Chris or whatever his name is. There's like all kinds of parodies around the Christian lingo thing that we do. People who use and invoke lots of Christian language and they're always talking in like these weird Christian vernacular terms and, you know, it's like, Whatever. And we kind of baptize that and call it just evangelical Christianity. They're orthodox, right? Like they know Jesus is Lord. They confess, as the demons do in James, that Jesus is Lord. They're also successful. This is probably the most dangerous part. They're successful. Look at all the things that they've done. They begin to recite their resume to Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, um, they're, they're like excited children, you know, it's just like, daddy, daddy, like Jesus, look at me, look at me on that day. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we preach powerful sermons in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Like we were successful. We cast demons out of people. Didn't we do mighty works? This, this language here is mighty powers. You see it all throughout the book. Of all throughout the Gospels, it's one of the characteristics of Jesus is he does mighty powers. He's a worker of mighty powers. You see it in the book of Acts. The disciples and the apostles are workers of mighty powers. They're successful. They're powerful. They're gifted ministry leaders. That's who Jesus is talking to right here. They had preaching abilities. They had healing powers. They had supernatural ministries that on the outside looked effective, looked successful. They were growing, right? They had large platforms. They had, like, we, we kind of call this influence. We'll talk about this, like influence. Well, like, you know, like I want to be a person of influence. I want to lead a church of influence. I want to be part of an influential movement of God. And, and really what influence is like, it's like code for control it's code for uh, sometimes ungodly ambition. We just call it influence. Leadership is influence. These are the people with book deals. These are the people getting platformed at conferences to speak. These are people who are leading growing missional communities. Multiplying on missions. They have a large, maybe online following, you know, and they've got their little Bible study thing. They're involved with Bible study fellowship and they're involved with all kinds of Christian things. And they've got lots of people who think they're amazing. And they're also very self-confident. They're very aware of how successful they are. And they let everybody know about it, right? Like, Lord, Lord, there's this intensity about them. You ever meet somebody who's very intense about telling you all the things they're doing for God? In the name of Jesus, like three times here, they say, in the name of Jesus, in your name. Didn't we do these things in your name? In the Bible, in, in, in ancient cultures, when you wanted to communicate uh, fervency and enthusiasm, you would repeat it, right? Re- repetition signaled intensity. It signaled devotion and excitement, right? And so, Lord, Lord, we did these things in your name. Lord, Lord, we did these things in your name. Lord, Lord, it's all for you, Jesus, you know. They're hungry, they're driven, they're charismatic, they attract crowds, they're very self-confident in their ability to make things happen for God. You know, they're Instagramming 
like 5 a.m., their quiet time, let everybody know. You know, just, you know, so blessed. Right? All this activity, all of this heat, all of this energy. Now, here's the crazy thing. Like, wouldn't most of us just reading this passage describe these people as the good guys? Like, do you want to have power? You want to have influence? You want to, like, do something great for the kingdom of God? It's not bad. We would assume that people who have these powerful ministries, who are casting out demons, preaching good sermons, those are good things. Like, we want people to be healed, right? We want people to, to learn the word. We want people to grow uh, in their relationship with Christ. We want to see supernatural breakthrough happen, like, like, do you have anybody in your life that's like an addict? You, are you an addict? Like, all of us are in different ways. Don't you want those people to experience powerful deliverance? Like, we tend to see these and kind of ask, like, what's wrong with this? This is just like the normal vision for success in the West. And yet Jesus brings the twist. We move from the profile of the crushing it Christian to the crushing words of Jesus. The crushing words of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will say to them, Jesus says, I have a confession for you. So literally the word there is the word that we would use for confession, homo legeo, same thing, saying the same thing. Jesus says, I have something to say to you. Just chill. Hold on a second. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Literally, the language here is get out of my face. Depart from me. Depart from being before me. This is the essence of hell in the New Testament. is being removed from the presence of love itself. That is hell in the Bible. Being cast away from the presence of the one who created us to know him, to love him, and to be known by him and be loved by him. See, there's this tragic irony in the story that we need to pay attention to. The tragic irony, the twist here is that crushing it for Jesus often leads us to being crushed by Jesus if we're not careful. That doing things for Jesus can actually end up keeping us from Jesus. Being busy, crushing it, winning, doing things in the name of Jesus can actually lead us away from Jesus, can lead us far from the presence of Jesus. Uh, the, only, the only analogy I could kind of think of this week in describing this is like um, in a marriage. When you have, in like husbands, our tendency, uh, particularly, you know, if you're kind of the sole breadwinner in your family, is to kind of think like, is that go to work and I'm out crushing it in the workforce? Um, so one person said the last decade could be called the decade of crushing it, right? Because that's kind of how everybody talks and killing it. Uh, this is very like violent language around how we think about our work. Um, and so I'm going out and I'm killing it for my family. And I assume that this activity and providing for my family is what my family really wants and desires and needs for me, which is true to an extent. But I think of the husband who just goes and he works long hours and he's crushing it and he's traveling um, while the kids are growing up. It's like kind of like a, a modern version of like the cats in the cradle, you know, and, and then uh, the, the kids uh, kind of graduate high school. 
And then one day, uh, the wife wakes up and looks him in the face and says, I don't know you anymore. And, and they split up in divorce. Like, how many of us, I mean, I have, hear this story often, kids in this church whose parents, when they graduated high school, split up? What was happening there? What was all doing for the family, but no being in relationship with the family? Depart from me. I never knew you. I don't know you. I don't have a relationship with you. You've done all these things for me, and yet I don't know you. There was a great 30 for 30 on, uh, I grew up in, I'm from the South. I was, I was a pro wrestling fan. And there's a great documentary, uh, on, uh, 30 for 30 the other night on, uh, Ric Flair, the nature boy. And it was interesting because Ric Flair has uh, a couple children, and it, the juxtaposition there of him as an old man, and he looks terrible. He, he, he looks, man, like road hard, hung up wet. It is, it is not a great sight, right? Like this guy who was so beautiful with the blonde hair, who was so well respected, probably one of the most famous wrestlers of all time. And it was interesting. They would talk, he, they would kind of cut in. The way they did the editing was brilliant uh, and tragic and sad and ironic because they had him talking about all of his accolades and all of his accomplishments. And they would splice in underneath it these testimonies from his children saying, my dad wasn't here for this. My dad wasn't here for this. All I wanted was to have a relationship with my dad. One of his sons actually tragically committed suicide. That's the only thing I can think of here is something along those lines. We get so busy doing things for Jesus, thinking that what Jesus wants me to do is to be out busy doing things in his name, to be a proxy for Jesus in my neighborhood, in my family, in my community, in my workplace. But Jesus says, get out of my face. I don't even know who you are. Like We've spent time thinking that we know him, and yet he says, I don't know you. We own him. He disowns us. We do things for him. He doesn't know who we are. This word knowing here is not just intellectual knowledge. One scholar uh, says it like this. Knowing in the biblical tradition communicates having a relationship, even sexually at times. So think back to Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve. Okay, we have kids in the room. He knew his wife Eve. Okay, like that communicates intimacy at the, at the core, relationship. But it also serves, he says, as a way to speak of God's special relationship with his people. So he says, I, you may have known me intellectually, you may have known me ministry-wise, but you didn't know me. I didn't know you. I had no relationship with you. You never spent time with me, talking to me, walking with me. Doing for Jesus can keep us from knowing Jesus. There's all kinds of examples of this. People who had crazy powers in the Bible, who in the end didn't know Jesus, didn't know God, weren't followers of him. I think of uh, Balaam's donkey. Um, I love the King James because I got to say Balaam's ass when I was a kid growing up. Um, Balaam's donkey, right? Like he preached a sermon. Uh, I think of um, the Egyptian magicians who were able to replicate the miracles of Moses and yet didn't have a relationship with God. They were workers of powers. Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, who gets drawn in because he sees Peter and James and John and the apostles doing these great works. And he says, teach me how to do that. How can I get this? How can I acquire that? How can I buy that power? Because he wanted to kind of domesticate or tame or harness the power of God for his own selfish ambition. And he said, wow. And Peter says, man, you are cursed. Pray to the Lord that he saves you from that kind of wickedness. Think of Judas, 
One of Jesus' own inner circle, his 12. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends them out to cast out demons, to perform mighty works of God, and Judas does it, and yet in the end, he ends up being a false disciple. He was deceived. Depart from me. I never knew you. Not only that, he says, he calls them workers of lawlessness. Quoting Psalm Chapter 6, verse 8, he says, you are evil. You are evil. See, keeping the law in the Bible, being lawless, we tend to think of lawless people, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of talk about this recently. Um, we tend to think of them as beasts, uh, or just like, you know, animals, and we kind of think of that as lawless. But in the Bible, you can actually be really religious and be lawless. The word here is a-law, like anti-law. And this idea of law in the Sermon on the Mount is not a bunch of people running around committing acts of uh, overt violence or, uh, you know, drug use or these kinds of things that we tend to think of when we think of lawless people. Um, you can be very moral and be lawless. Well, the law, keeping the law, being a lawful person in the Sermon on the Mount, we've talked about this before, is, is doing the will of God. It's the one who does the will of God. And we know from uh, Matthew chapter 5, I shall throw this verse up here again. We talked about this a few months ago. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So keeping the law was about righteousness. It's about a relationship with Jesus, knowing Jesus that leads us to do what Jesus says. Doing the will of the Father is living out the Sermon on the Mount. And living out the Sermon on the Mount is doing the will of the Father. It's a relationship of the whole person to Jesus that leads us to do what he commands. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says something similar. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So believing in Jesus, following Jesus, then leads us to obey his commandments. The summary of the Sermon on the Mount. So here's... An interesting thought for us. Again, a terrifying thought for us. And I'll steal this from another pastor because I thought it was really good. Impact without intimacy can be evil. Impact. We talk a lot about impact. Social impact, religious impact, kingdom impact, influence, these kind of words. Impact without intimacy can be utterly evil. Like, when you look around and you, I don't know if you ever, I don't know, like, you come to this church. Maybe some of you are like, well, I don't think this church have much impact. I'm just here. Okay, but, like, I don't know if you've ever been to, like, a Christian conference or a Christian college, and there's powerful things happening, right? And we tend to look at those things. There's signs and wonders and power and, and, and strong gospel-centered, Christ-centered preaching, and demons are being cast out. People are being healed. They have maybe, like, a powerful ministry. And what do we tend to say when we show up in those environments? Wow! The Holy Spirit is moving, right? God is on the move. Powerful things are happening. Look at all the, the tangible, concrete evidence. This church is having an impact. This thing is moving. But the reality, Jesus says, is be careful. You can be deceived. Because impact without intimacy can be evil. The reality is you can be extremely religious and you can experience lots of miracles and healing. And you can have great doctrinally orthodox sermons and yet be absolutely lawless. You can be evil, Jesus says. 
Because the way that you're engaging in those things is not about giving glory to God. It's about controlling God. It's about using God to get glory for yourself, to draw attention to yourself and your leadership and your platform. Although you never say that on the brand or on the you know, on the publicity sheet or on Instagram. It's using God for your own personal reputation and power. And it's so subtle. It's so hard to see. Matthew 23, verses 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says. Hypocrites. For you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, right? But within you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others. You say the right things. You go to the right places. You don't do the wrong things. But within you, and here's that word again, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And you can't even Second Thessalonians 2 says it's much deeper than just our own actions and choices. We're being influenced by an enemy who hates us. Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10. The coming of the lawless one, there's that language again, is by the activity of Satan with all power and get this false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Satan takes those ambitions in us and he, and he dances on those vulnerabilities. He, he leverages those vulnerabilities to enslave us. And while we think we're experiencing success and freedom, and we think we're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, he is subverting that, twisting that, and using that to lead us away from Jesus. That is terrifying. That we could be thinking we're walking in power, doing powerful things for God, and yet be so far from God. It's exactly what Satan wants. It's for us to think that we're successful, for us to think that we're powerful, for us to think that we've got it all together, for us to kind of look down our nose at other ministries, other churches, other groups, and to say, God's clearly over here in our corner, right? He's on our team. He's wearing our jersey because we're growing. Look how fast we're growing. Look at how much, you know, look how cool we are, right? It's like the cool church idea. Look at how cool this church is. Look at all the great things we're doing in the community, and look at all those sad other churches who don't have it going on like we do. I mean, you see how subtle it can just creep in. I know it because I've lived it. I've lived it. I've been in some of the largest churches in the country, and I was in many ways raised. I didn't become a Christian until I was a teenager, and and I was not a great Christian teenager. And I had a spiritual awakening at twenty, and uh, immediately uh, became a Christian and got involved in a very successful uh, large megachurch and several megachurches. And, and I've been in this toxic environment where it's all about success. It's all about influence. It's all about, you know, the kind of the ABCs of Christianity in the West, right? Attendance, buildings, cash, influence, I. And I've been complicit in it. I've done it, right? And I thought I was doing the right thing. I've, I've, I don't know if you've ever been in that environment, you, you, you know what it's like to feel used by people. Where people tell you one thing and they tell you that they're, they're all about Jesus, but really like all the language, all the talk, all the outward signs are really about success and, and being gifted and, and leveraging God. I mean, how sick is that? And yet we do it, all of us, in different ways. So this call here for Jesus to us is a call to a paradigm shift. 
It's a call to a paradigm shift in our spirituality. From one that val, I think from one that values winning to one that values loving. And there's a huge difference. From one that values winning and success and crushing it to one that values love and the kingdom of God in very simple, unspectacular ways. Not to say that we don't want God to come up and show up in spectacular ways. I want God to show up in spectacular ways. But the normal, ordinary rhythm of Christian life is going to be from winning to loving. And it's hard because it's so embedded in who we are as Christians in the West. It's hard for us to see what, what, what one pastor calls the winner's script. Like psychologists talk about these scripts that get embedded in us from our earliest ages, right? That we kind of live out of. They become things that we rehearse and we live out of. Uh, they're oftentimes given to us by our families of origin, right? And they become ways of just living in the world. They're unconscious and we're just blind to like the fact that we have a culture. Like um, all of us have those scripts that we kind of live out of. Our experiences, formative experiences we've had in the church, these all kind of code into us a script or an operating system that we then live out of. And the dominant script for Western Christianity, just being an American. I mean, our whole story, I just finished John Adams' biography by David McCall. Like, our whole story is like, we won. We got, we won against the British. And we've, we've created a society where there's winners and there's losers. And that, for honest, creeps into the church. There's winners. And they're the ones that are growing and have all the power and have all the money and have the resources. And there's losers. This winner script, right, is this being, we're just enamored with like exponential success. We're enamored with growing, with winning, with crushing and with influence. And so again, I just want to remind us like, let's not read somebody else into the story. Let's assume that Jesus is talking to us. Because this is so woven into who we are, it's hard for us to see how often we talk like this and think like this and act like this in the world. Honestly, it's why a lot of people, some of you in this room who are not Christians, can't stand the church. They pick it up easier than we do. I was talking to a guy this week. Um, We were having coffee and he was just talking about his experiences on staff at a church. And he was talking about how um, it was a better culture and climate in the business marketplace than when he was on staff at his church. The craziest thing about this passage is how surprised they are at the end. I mean, this is unexpected. They're so confident that they are doing the right things in the name of Jesus. They're shocked. Like they double down when Jesus calls them out. They like double down. No, no, Lord, Lord, you don't get it. Look at all the stuff that we did in your name. They're surprised. And here's the the thing I would just kind of point out to us as we just kind of close with some application here. The more gifted we call ourselves and we think of ourselves, those of us who experience success in, in business and in startup world and church and your mission community, your discipleship efforts, you're using and exercising of your gifting both from a human standpoint and a supernatural standpoint. The more gifted you are, the more vulnerable you are to rejoicing in the wrong things and being blind to how you're doing it. Luke chapter 10, again, another kind of scary passage. Jesus sends out the disciples to do uh, great work. Seventy-two people, we don't know their names, we don't know who they are. Uh, after he sends out the apostles, he sends out this group of 72. 
The 72 returned with joy after experiencing just lots of great supernatural works of God. And here's what they said. Here's their takeaway from their time out on mission in the field. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Look at all this power that we have. Look at all this success that we have. Demons are fleeing us. We're like ghostbusters, man. Like we're out there doing great things for God. And look at what Jesus says to them. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life or in heaven. It's easy for us to rejoice in the wrong things, to get excited about the wrong things. Jesus said, it's not about you casting out demons. What about those people that you helped? You forgotten about them? They're not commodities to be used to advance your own agenda. They're people who God deeply loves. How about just being thankful for the fact that you're even here in the first place? You see, we confuse our gifts with grace. We over-identify with our gifts. And we forget about the grace of God. Only by the grace of God do I even have this power. Do I have this identity? Do I have a relationship with Jesus? 1 Corinthians 13, 1-2. Paul warns the Corinthians, one of the most gifted churches in the Bible, right? Like in the New Testament, there's no more gifted church, Paul says, than the Corinthians. They are smart. They are sharp. They are some of the most affluent, well-to-do people uh, of their day. A number of them come to Jesus. And yet we have this warning in 1 Corinthians 13 from Paul. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Those were instruments used in pagan worship. He said, you're a pagan. And if I have prophetic powers and ability to preach great sermons and teach uh, and lead podcasts that thousands of people follow, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing, he says. So what ends up happening, instead of crushing it in Jesus' name, is we end up being crushed. That's what Jesus is saying. We end up crushing our families we end up crushing our ministries we end up crushing our souls and i can give you a list of people that are walking in that wake right now martin luther said this it is a frightening judgment that no one is deeper in hell than the great servants of god speaking about this passage right here terrifying Richard Foster said this a few years ago. The desperate need today is not for a great, greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. What does it mean to be a deep person? That's what Jesus is inviting us. Be a person of substance here. Be a person that on that day when you stand before Jesus, your confession's not going to be just a list of superfluous things that you did in Jesus' name. But there's a depth there. There's there's a resilience there. There's something deeper than just your gifts. There's actual spiritual fruit. What it means to be a deep person, Jesus says, is two things. One, to know Jesus. I mean, like, as simple as that is, it's so tragic that we miss it. To know Jesus and to do His will. To know Jesus and do His will. So these are the questions that I want you to ask yourself as you go before the table here in a few minutes. Do I know Jesus? 
Like, I don't care how much stuff you do for Jesus. I don't care how many Bible studies you go to, how many podcasts you listen to, how many books you read, how many theology. You know, I don't care if you've memorized uh, the, the London Baptist Confession of Faith or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Apostles' Creed. I don't care how many gospel conferences you go to. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Him. John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, dwells with me, inhabits with me. He it is that bears much fruit. Not that exercises his gifts, bears fruit. There's a difference. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value apart from Jesus. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Apart from your gifts, abide in my love. Dwell in my love. Rest in my love. Live out of my love. You are not your gifts. There's nothing wrong with supernatural gifts, right? There's nothing wrong with prophetic powers, casting out demons, doing great things in the name of Jesus. It's, it's actually one of the descriptors of Jesus of Nazareth, Acts 22. It says, Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested by many great works, many great wonders. At least a dozen times in the Gospels, Jesus is doing mighty works. And he performs them and he empowers us, John 14, 12. I'm going to give you an ability to do even greater works than I've done. So it's not the gifts, it's how we use the gifts. It's how we see the gifts. This is what makes me accepted by God. This is what makes God have favor towards me. This is what's going to make me right as I stand before God one day, is all the stuff I've done for him. But here's the interesting thing. Think about Jesus. He was a man who did mighty works. You know, you realize, like, we only have about a three-year window, three-and-a-half-year window of his life given to us in the Gospels. What was Jesus, the man who did the miracles, the man who was a prophet, the man who did cast out demons, who healed people for three-and-a-half years, what was he doing the 30 years before we read about him in the New Testament? Matthew 3, a couple chapters back here, Jesus is baptized at the beginning of his ministry, and here's what God says. This is my son. With whom I'm well pleased. I suspect what Jesus was doing. Like, what did Jesus done to that point to be well pleased? the Father be well pleased? He had no resume. Hadn't healed anybody that we know of. Hadn't done any miracles. Hadn't fought for justice yet. What was he doing for 30 years? I suspect that he was living in the love of his Father. He was learning what it means to live into that statement with you, I'm well pleased, apart from what you do. He was living out his sonship, so to speak, his identity with Jesus, his identity with the Father. He knew and he loved his Father and he enjoyed his love. And then he lived out of that love and it got him killed. So it's a warning for us that every strength, every benefit, every gift of the Christian life is also a vulnerability. Right? Like any good thing that the Father gives us can be turned and weaponized by the enemy and used to destroy us. So you're really smart. God is going to, Satan is going to dance on that vulnerability and he's going to try to use that vulnerability to puff you up and make you think more highly of yourself than you ought because you're smart. Smartness does not equal godliness. You love the Bible, Satan's going to take your love for the Bible and make you forget about the God of the Bible who spoke those words into existence, who invites you into a relationship. You love theology, 
You love reading theology books and listening to Satan's going to take that and he's going to use that as a weapon to try to undermine your confidence in God to where you talk about philosophy, you talk about theology, you lead theology classes, and yet you're not living out any of that actual theology in the presence of God. So let me just give you a couple questions to consider on knowing Jesus, some diagnostic questions. How often am I spending time? These are questions I was asking myself this week. How often am I spending time relating to Jesus? What's my prayer life look like with Jesus, not just using my gifts for Jesus? How often am I spending time relating to Jesus, knowing him, loving him, delighting in the fact that he said with you, I'm well pleased because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus on my behalf, not just using my gifts for Jesus? What does my prayer life look like? What does it look like for me to abide in the vine, to be connected to the life of the vine? Second question, does the pace of life created by my gifts? Some of us have bigger gifts than others, right? That's the parable of the talents. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, right? There's different potencies, different gifts given with different strengths. Some of us have, you know, stronger gifts set in different ways than others in terms of more public ministry, more powerful ministries, uh, at least from a human standpoint. Does the pace of life created by my gifts enhance or diminish the space for me knowing Jesus? Third question, how do I respond in seasons when I don't get to use my gifts for Jesus? There's going to come a time when you're not going to be able to use your gifts. You get sidelined. You move cities. You change churches. You get laid low by an illness or you have a baby. Like, and you're not able to use those gifts and that platform that you've developed. Like, how do you respond? Does it feel like Jesus loves you less in those seasons when you're not using your gifts than when you were using your, your gifts and experiencing power? Because it's not true. He doesn't love you any less. And what it's doing is God is graciously exposing your need and your addiction to that approval for your identity. Do I find life empty when I can't use my gifts? Shouldn't be. Your gifts are limited. You are limited. But grace is not limited. Last one on this one. What fills my conversation? And I love to talk about organizational leadership. I have a doctorate in leadership. I love t- thinking about like structures and organizations. Some of you guys hate that. I love it. Okay. Um, but I can find myself, if I'm honest, talking a lot about the organization of SOMA and not talking a lot about Jesus. What is Jesus teaching you? Like what conversations are filling the hallways, the gallery here at SOMA? What conversations are filling offhand Remarks at cookouts is about leveraging our influences, about doing great things in the name of Jesus. Like, are we really talking about our communion with Jesus? What's he teaching you? How's he growing you? Where's he convicting you? Where's he challenging you? Do I know Jesus? And then, am I doing his will? Am I doing his will? Which is simply living out the Sermon on the Mount. Again, am I doing his will? Am I doing this? And I would just say it like this. It's the simple, everyday, ordinary Doing of what Jesus would do if he were here with me. Just the everyday life with Jesus, for Jesus, like Jesus. These are the true miracles that Jesus says are missing in the spectacular display of power here. Just the ordinary miracle of like, just think of the Beatitudes. Showing mercy, compassion, being poor in spirit, being humble, right? Like these basic Teachings here in the sermon about getting rid of anger in our hearts and our lives, living faithfully with our spouses, pursuing sexual purity in our relationships instead of dehumanizing and exploiting other people. Those are the true miracles that Jesus says are missing. And if we're honest, we often miss in our pursuit of the spectacular. 
We want the spectacular. We don't often want the ordinary. God gives us these ordinary opportunities every single day with widows and orphans and the fatherless and our neighbors. And we're all doing all this great ministry. Like my wife and I talk about it all the time. We're doing so much ministry in the name of Jesus. Like we don't have time to be with our neighbors. That's a problem. Leaders are followers of Jesus before they're leaders. So let me just ask you questions here and then we'll close. How am I serving people's everyday ordinary needs with practical love? Yes, you may be gifted. Yes, you may be a great communicator. Yes, you may have a massive following or whatever. But like, how are you serving people's practical ordinary needs in the everyday? Am I hiding behind my gifts as a cover for disobedience? And then lastly, what have I done for others today other than exercise my gifts? What have I done for others today other than exercise my gifts? This is the call of Jesus to us. Not to be about our will, but to be about our Father's will. Doing what He would do if He were here with us. I love Matthew 25, a very similar passage. Jesus says, on that day, there's going to be a day of judgment. And some will be cursed and they'll say, away from me. Again, I never knew you. Depart from me. But there's another invitation for those who would come and listen. He says, come, you who are blessed by my Father. What's the antidote to the tyranny of success and performance? It's right here in Matthew chapter 25. Come, you who are already blessed by my Father. Not because of what you do, not because of your powerful works, not because of your great preaching, not because of your growing missional community, not because of your gifts, but because my Father is the kind of Father who loves to bless people for no reason other than He is a gracious Father. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit Don't strive for, don't try to seize it, don't grasp after it. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Get this, before the foundation of the world, before you ever breathed your first breath, before you ever did your first deal, before you ever did anything in the name of Jesus, God foreordained, predestined you, Ephesians says, to pour out his blessings into your life. And so it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. It's about your identity in Christ. It's about knowing that with Jesus, because of Jesus, when you come into relationship with him by faith, you are blessed by your father apart from what you do. Man, like all of us need to hear that. Leaders need to hear that. But like, heck, all of us in the Midwest need to hear that. It's not about your performance. It's not about you showing up at church. It's not about you going to Bible study or praying. It is simply you have a father who wants to bless you, who has done so in and through Jesus. And he invites you to come and to receive and to rest and to live a life of love rooted in Jesus. And so let's take a moment to examine ourselves as we come to communion. And let's ask ourselves those questions. Do I know Jesus, right? I can be at church and not know Jesus, be real busy for Jesus. But there's no love if you're honest. There's no prayer life. There's no real connection to Jesus at the organic level. It's mechanical. It is intellectual. It is, you're, you're, you're an activist, man. You're all involved with uh, justice causes in the name of Jesus, but there's no relationship with Christ. Okay, Jesus says eternal life is knowing him, right? Knowing Jesus. And so today could be an opportunity for you to, for the first time, know him at an intimate level. Do I know him? Am I obeying his will? Am I doing what he's asked me to do with the people that he's placed around me? Let's take a moment to confess our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus, if that is your testimony, that you do know him and that you do love him.
And he knows you and he loves you. Then I want to invite you in just a moment to come and receive communion. We have stations at the front, stations at the back. Come and take a piece of the bread, tear it off and dip it into the cup as a reminder that God is for you, that he is with you, that he will never cast you out, that he will never leave you or forsake you, that as you are living life for Jesus, you are with Jesus in the presence of Jesus. And he covers our sins and he invites us into a relationship with himself. If you're not, we'd invite you to sustain your seat as others come. Let me pray for us. Father, this is a terrifying passage, particularly for those of us who see ourselves as gifted or successful, we see ourselves as paragons or templates of what it means to be a winner in the kingdom of God, and we often find ourselves judging and superiority others and looking down on them um, as we exercise our gifts. God, deliver us, save us from ourselves. Use uh, these words and the community of people around us to point out ways that we are subtly vulnerable and buying into these lies. God, would you break the winner's script that we so often follow, fall into as Western Christians. And God, would you replace it with a gospel script, with a kingdom script that we have been created for a relationship of love and we have been designed to then give that love to other people in very simple, everyday practices. So God, make us those kinds of people by the power of your spirit at work in us right now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.